Well, let's go to the Lord here in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we have prepared our hearts and we have worshiped you and we acknowledge now that you are worthy. And Lord, we want to align our lives and our circumstances and our opportunities and our trials and our successes and all that we are. We want to align those around your word. We do not want to live and operate in our own strength. We want to be surrendered and totally submitted to your word. And so, Father, I pray that as your word now is preached, that you would open our hearts and that you would give us um, an awakening of our faith and that you would prepare for us in our hearts whatever that you would call us to and that we would bring now ourselves under the authority of your word. And we do that by faith. And we do it with thanksgiving. We are grateful that we have an opportunity to sit before your word. So come and help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. Uh, My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are sort of coming to the conclusion, uh, at least in this next month, of a series that we've been doing on the subject of faith. And uh, we've entitled that series, By Faith. And really what we've done is we've kind of walked through Hebrews chapter 11, verse by verse, which is known to many as the Hall of Faith. And you've got these great characters in all of the Bible who are on display for us as examples of what our life should look like as Christians. What does it mean to walk by faith in this life? And, uh, and so we've been looking at these, these great phenomenal characters And one of the things that we feel very strongly about at Heritage is that we do not come here, we do not gather on Sunday to hear the opinions of man, but we gather to listen to God's word. We want to hear what God has to say about things. And so this morning we end up in Hebrews 11, 29 and Exodus 14. And we're going to listen to God this morning discuss or tell us or describe for us what a life of faith is. Now, it's hard to overstate the importance of this text. You think about not just 11.29, but Exodus 14. Hebrews 11.29 is a summary of Exodus 14. And it's hard to overstate the importance of Exodus 14 in the Bible. This event of the Red Sea crossing. Alec uh, Modier says that there are at least two dozen references to the Red Sea crossing in the Bible. And there are many other allusions. One of the most interesting texts actually is Luke chapter 9 uh, with the transfiguration. And it's really interesting there in that in the transfiguration, Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah. Moses obviously is the figure at the Exodus, right? And so he's speaking to Moses and Elijah. And in that passage, it says that they were speaking about Jesus's departure. But actually the Greek word that is used there is the word Exodus. They were talking about his Exodus, which is a reference surely not only to his exodus from this earth or from this life, but a reference back to the exodus event. And here he is speaking with Moses about the redemption of God's people that happened when Moses was there with God's people and the exodus that will happen when he leaves this earth. It's a, it's a profound section of scripture. And so the word this Exodus event actually was the event of the Old Testament. In fact, it, sure, it served as a type and as a shadow of things to come. And when you think about the organic unity between the Old and the New Testament, it's, it's breathtaking. For example, I was thinking about this. What, what do you think an Israelite would say? Let's say you're a news reporter and these guys had just come through the Red Sea and they get to the other side 
and you were going to interview one of these Israelites, let me ask you this question. What do you think, if you interviewed him, he would say if you asked him, who are you? I, I think he would say something like this. And he would say, I came, well, I came from a foreign land. I was under the sentence of death. I was in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb. And my mediator led us out as we crossed over. And now we're on our way to the promised land, but we're not there yet. But God has given us his word and he has made us a community and he has given us a place to worship and his presence is in our midst. And he's going to stay with us until we get home. Now, that's almost exactly word for word what we would say as Christians. And so you begin to think about the unity here of Scripture. And we come to this passage in which this is not only a picture of how God has redeemed us out of slavery, but it's a text that shows us how faith responds in the midst of a crisis. And what's interesting is that the emphasis in Hebrews 11 does not fall on God or his power, but it actually falls on the faith of those who pass through the sea. And in that sense, this is an immensely practical text for us. In verse 29, we read this. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. Now, that's interesting that it says by faith. Because this is a mass of humanity. Scholars suggest that it was upwards of one to one and a half million people that are crossing this sea at that time. And so these guys were not an impressive, impressive military bunch. Um, they were a stripped down, a fearful, sort of ragtag bunch of uh, former slaves. Uh, they, they were, they, these guys were, they were wounded. They were weakened people. And yet in Hebrews 11, here we see that they're praised for their faith. So let's turn over to Exodus 14 now. And as we walk through this chapter, Exodus 14, I want us to, I, w- I want to show you how they face this crisis by faith. And specifically, I'm going to show you three things. But before we do that, let's just read verse one together. Let's read the first few verses of Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. In verse four, and they did so. Now you have to appreciate this scene. Everything is going well. I mean, they're, they're going out of slavery. They're on their way out to freedom, total freedom. And then God says to them, turn back. I want you to turn back because I want Pharaoh to think that you're lost in the wilderness so that he'll be tempted to send his army after you. You got to think of what, what would be going on in their mind at this point. I mean, they're like, what did he say? He wants us to turn back. We just came out. And now he wants us to sort of trap us here so that Pharaoh will come after us. What God is doing here is he's essentially creating a we need more faith moment in Israel. And and so God says, I'm going to put you in a position where you're going to need a lot more faith than you've ever had before. Verse 5. 
When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers all over them. Now a chariot in sort of Old Testament time would have been like the sort of war uh, machine, would have been like a tank. It would have been like the thing to have in the ancient world. 600 of the best of these and then all the rest of them that were in Egypt is what he says. So Pharaoh gets all the chariots of Egypt and while the people are camped out, they begin to see a dust cloud forming in the distance. You think about this, the worst part of this for them must have been to hear those chariots coming. There's nothing as frightening as getting loose from something only to hear it coming back after you again. I mean, imagine the stampede of horses, the the sound of the whip. But God is in control here. And what happens next is that God heightens this sort of we need more faith moment in Israel. Verse 10 says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried to the Lord. Now, remember that the writer of the Hebrews says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. And that's a bit odd because at this moment, these people don't look like they're very faith filled, do they? They're full of fear. They don't know what's going on. They're in total confusion. Now all of Egypt is coming after them and they're basically under duress. And Exodus 14, I mean, you have these people and you can completely understand their frustration and fear that begin crying out to God for help. And then actually they begin screaming at Moses as you go on and read the, the, the account and they start questioning his leadership And they say all these encouraging things to Moses, like, Moses, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you would bring us out here to die? Well, that's encouraging. People were wondering, why are they suddenly, why are we suddenly following this guy, Moses? I mean, you can hear the chatter. One guy says to the next guy, he says, did you vote for Moses? Because I don't remember voting for Moses. I don't remember making him the leader of our team. And we're here at the sea and we're trapped. Moses is stupid. Why did he bring us here? We're going to die. There's nowhere to go. And they're all upset. And they're standing there just, and who anointed this guy to lead us is the question. And what's amazing is that here they have all the, the jewelry and the gold and everything else that God had given them out of Egypt. And they're on their way to freedom. And they're standing there and they realize, uh-oh, we're trapped. And they start to reminisce in verse 12. They say, you know... Egypt wasn't that bad. And besides, I mean, whoever said making bricks without straw was hard. And in fact, we told Moses, we said, Moses, it would be better for us to be slaves in Egypt than to die out here in the wilderness. And so again, their faith really isn't that remarkable at this point. They have nowhere to turn. God has shut them in. God has hemmed them in. One guy put it like this. I love this. He said, the Lord led his people into a corner so that they would have to surrender completely to him. And he does this because he intends to show them how they are wrapped in the power of his love. That's a great perspective. See, the amazing thing about how God works is that sometimes, is this true or false? Sometimes God will corner you. Sometimes God will hem you in. 
Sometimes God will push you up against a wall. And he'll leave you with no other way of escape. And why does he do this? He does this because he wants to tell you that if there's going to be any rescue, if there's going to be any deliverance, if there's going to be any help, it will be because he and God and God alone is the one who released you from that. Now, let's face it. We don't like that, do we? We say, Lord, why, why don't you just deliver me in a more comfortable way? Why don't you deliver me in a way that doesn't scare me to death or make me so nervous? But you see, God doesn't provide a bridge across the Red Sea. God doesn't put a latte in your hand while you walk through your trial. Because God's love is not simply a pampering love. God's love is a perfecting love. God asks you to step into things that you have never stepped into before. And when you get down there in that thing, you're thinking, man, I can't make this. I, I'm not going to, ha- I can't handle this. And he brings you to that place of faith. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like? The first person, the first Israelite that actually stepped foot in the sea. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like for little babies and children that were looking up at these huge walls of water on their left side and on their right side. And some would have said, this is great. You know, God's going to deliver us. Look what he's doing. This is amazing. And we're walking through. And other people would have been like, we're dead. We're going to die. These water, these things are going to come down any second now. So some are freaking out. And others are like trusting God and believing strongly in faith. And others are just absolutely screaming and, and concerned and worried about their kids and their babies. And, but here's the thing. Everyone in Israel was saved, weren't they? I mean, weak faith or strong faith, because here's the thing. It's not the strength of someone's faith that saves them, but the object of their faith. It's not the quality. It's not the strength of our faith. God fought for them. It had nothing to do with the quality of their faith. What did they do? They just simply cried out to God like a little child. So this is the first thing we learn about faith. Faith kneels down. That's what faith does. This is the posture of faith. Faith kneels down. It cries out to God. Faith sees the end of self and it looks to God. Notice verse 10. It says, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And actually Moses does the same thing. We know that because in verse 15 it says, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? The point is, these guys are all praying. That's where their faith starts. It it doesn't move ahead rashly. It doesn't rely on its own strength. It stops. It gets down on its knees and it begins to pray to God for help. Friends, this is the posture of faith. Kneel down. That's where it starts. But in doing this, they also learn how to be still. We sang about that this morning. Be still. We see this in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, he says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. Here it is. And you only have to be still. Can you imagine? Here it is, the army coming down upon Israel. They are in big time trouble. And Moses says, hey, listen, fear not, no more fear, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord and be still. What do you mean? Be still. These guys are coming in on us. Be still, he says. 
Now, when I see those words, what I'm basically hearing Moses saying is this, is listen, God, listen, Israel, God is going to take care of us. Shut up. That's kind of the, the, the sort of ethos here. The Lord is going to fight for you. Just be still. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Be still. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Some of you are, and some of you have a pattern and habit of this, of running around and fretting and crying and researching options to no end and pacing back and forth and you're worried sick and you are stressed out of your mind and that is a consistent sort of thing for you. And what God is saying to you this morning is, listen, stop, stop, sit down, sit down for a minute, be still before God and do what Moses says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Honor him this morning in that. Now look at verse 13 again. Moses says three things, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. And, you know, and I think that's shorthand for what we need to do in the face of a crisis. When we're afraid, we need to cling to the promises of God. But understand this. God's promises do not appear exceedingly great until you need them. God's promises are not precious to you until you put your full weight on them and they begin to hold you up. So let's do this. Let, let me give you three post-it notes this morning. When you write something on each one, stick it on your fridge. All right? Three post-it notes, and you can jot these down. And the next time you find yourself in a crisis of faith, you can remind yourself of these things. Here's the first one. I will not fear. God is always with me. I will not fear. God is always with me. Cling to promises like Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, there's just something about God that when we get into the moment of affliction, when we get into a moment of crisis or we get into a moment of trouble, that it says, oh, God just sort of rolls up his sleeves and he moves towards us in love. Have you noticed that? In your affliction, in your trial, he comes toward you. And, and listen, we, we come to church to hear truth. And I'm telling you some truth this morning. And the truth I'm telling you is that God is with you. God is with you. He's close to you. He will never leave you. Hold on to that promise. But you say, okay, well, yes, thanks. I appreciate that. But still, I got to tell you that while that's true, things are still out of control over here. All right? So, well, here's the second thing then. Here's the second post-it note. Jot this down. I will not doubt God is always in control. I will not doubt God is always in control. See, doubt has a way of torching everything. Doubt has a way of withering the soul. It alters our perspective. It fills us with destructive thoughts. And in times like this, we have to remember truths like Proverbs 16, 4, which says the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Or Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So before you start analyzing, you know, all the bad news, before you pull out the newspaper and turn on the TV and think through your financial situation and start crunching numbers and going through all the medical reports, before you start doing all that and completely stressing yourself out again for another day, listen to me, you, need, you may not see it now, but you must understand that God is with you. He is in control 
and God is good and and sort of his method of good may not be what you think is good, but God may not want you to have everything cozy. God may not want you to sort of have everything in its place because if that's the case, you're not forced to trust him. But here's the thing, God will take care of you because God is in control and I will not doubt. You say, all right, okay, well, that's helpful. God is with me. Uh, he's in control, excellent. I'm, I'm glad we're on the same page with those things. But here's the thing, I still don't like where this thing's headed. Okay, we'll write this down. Here's the third thing. I will not despair. God is always good. I will not despair. God is always good. Psalm 27, 13. I love this. David says, I would have despaired, but I believed that I would see the goodness of God. See, I would have despaired, but I I believe, I, I believe inside that I will see the goodness of God. I bet there are people here this morning that are in despair. I bet maybe you just came from the doctor's office. Maybe you got some bad news. But listen, it doesn't really matter what's going on. If you're a Christian, you have no reason ultimately to despair. Yes, it's hard. And yes, we have sorrow. But we do not sorrow like those who have no hope. We have a God that has a future in store for us. God is watching. God is faithful and he will be good to you. So you take those things, take those notes, put them somewhere, especially keep them in your heart, preach them to yourself. Well, that's the first thing that faith does. Faith kneels down. All right. Here's the second. Here's the second thing faith does. The second posture of faith. Okay. If the first posture of faith is kneel down, what's the second posture? Here it is. It's move forward, move forward. We left off in verse 14, where Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. Do not fear. God will fight for you. Just be quiet and trust. Now, if I can use just a little bit of sanctified imagination here, um, I can just see Moses at this point, turning to God in private. And while Moses is up there saying, do not fear guys, do not fear. I can see Moses turning to God at himself in private and say, God, what are you doing? Like, what am I supposed to do? All these people are looking to me for leadership and I got this army coming in against me. And God, what are you doing? What am I supposed to do? And look at God's answer in verse 15. It's amazing. God says, why are you crying out to me? Just go forward. That doesn't seem like a real helpful answer when you first read it. But I mean, because think about it, how much faith did it take for them to move forward and follow Moses? And how much faith did it take for Moses to be like, guys, we're moving forward, moving forward into what? Into the sea. We're going into the sea. (laughs) I mean, easy guys would be laughing at Moses. Like, are you crazy? So like we could stand here and maybe surrender and go back into slavery, but you're asking us to drown ourselves. Is this guy insane? I mean, you can just feel the, the emotion of this thing. See, here's the thing. God puts us in places where we are forced to trust him. He will close us in in such a way that the only thing we can do is trust him. And we don't have any other choice. And that's what he did with Israel. And here's the thing I was thinking about is that when we lack faith, God gives it to us. And that that, that amazes me because here God is praising them for their faith in Hebrews 11. I mean, he's praising them for their faith. Now, we all know, don't we, that God's the one who gave him any faith whatsoever to walk through that, and yet he's praising him for it. It's like the kid, the little boy who goes up and he buys his mommy a gift with his mommy's money. 
And he says, mom, I want to give you this gift. And, and, and his mom is like, oh, son, this is beautiful. Thank you so much. This is the greatest present ever. And it came from her money. But yet she praises him. And God does that with our faith. He gives us faith. And then he says, I'm proud of you. That faith delights me. That faith makes me happy. Well, the people go forward, but note this, they go forward on the word of God. It may have come through Moses, but it's God's word nonetheless. So we read by faith, the people cross the sea. And then the verse ends on this cheery note. When the Egyptians, we're back in Hebrews, when the Egyptians tried the same thing, they were drowned. I love, love the Bible. I love the juxtaposition of those two things. I mean, understand this, because here's the issue, is that Israel's salvation was Egypt's judgment. In the Bible, salvation and judgment are always mingled together. And here, Israel is saved through Egypt's judgment. When Egypt tried to cross the sea on their own strength, the wheels of their chariots, these big time machines that were like the sort of the talk of the empire, the wheels of the chariots fell off. Like it's a joke. These big bad dudes coming down to get the people of Israel and like the, the wheels are clunking and falling off. And, and here's this thing. God is pursuing them and they have nowhere to run and the whole army gets into the heart of the sea and God unleashes an absolute tidal wave on these people and destroys them. And verse 28 says, not one of them remained. What separated these two groups? Well, the the issue is faith, of course. I mean, Israel believed God. They moved forward in faith. And because that's the second thing faith does. Faith first kneels down. The second thing it does is it moves forward. Faith gets its feet moving in obedience to God. And maybe some of you need to get your feet moving this morning. Begin to think about your life here for a second. Maybe you need to get your feet moving on some things. Because you know there are times, isn't this true? There are times when we know exactly what to do and we are delaying doing it. And we'll say stuff like, well, you know, I I think I just need a little more time to pray about it. No, no, you don't need more time to pray about what you know to do. Spurgeon says this. He says, beware of substituting prayer for faith. God said to the people, move forward. I have not come here to deal with your ifs and your buts and your excuses. Move forward. Well, they did. And after they got to the other side of the sea... We're told in verse 31, when Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, they feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. And this is interesting. And they believed in his servant, Moses. Finally, Moses gets some credibility. It's interesting. The guys attack the whole time. And then they see, you know what? This leader that we thought was just an idiot. He's actually, he actually led us to safety and to freedom. And so faith kneels down in prayer, moves forward in obedience. And finally, here's the third posture of faith. Faith looks up in worship. It looks up in worship. I love how the story ends. I mean, not only did Israel cross over to the other side, but they were able to turn around and watch the waters destroy the army of Pharaoh. 
God knew that this company of slaves and how kind of God needed to once again experience his power and salvation. And that leads us to chapter 15, which the whole chapter 15 is pretty much a song of praise dedicated to God. I mean, God's salvation elicits, this is awesome, a song of praise. And they begin to sing to the Lord spontaneously. Now, I'm convinced this is a spontaneous song, okay? I don't think Moses sort of sat down and cranked out a a hymn real quick. These guys have just come on the other side of the sea. They're singing out of the overflow of their hearts. And here's what came out. I will sing to the Lord. Here's the words. For he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he's become my salvation. And this is my God. And I will praise him. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The Lord will reign forever. These are the words coming out of their mouth. They're exuberant. They are expressing great praise and glory to God. What I like about this text is that these people may not have danced when they got into the Red Sea. But when they stepped out of it and saw what God had done, they broke out in dance and in song. And praise to the Lord, verse 20. It says they danced. Is is there anyone here this morning who can look over their right shoulder And see what God has brought you out of. Listen to me. Do you hear me? Is there anybody here that can look over their shoulder and see and remember what God has brought you? Not your wife, not your kids, you. What he has brought you out of. Do some thinking with me this morning, okay? Is there anybody that can look and see what God has brought you out of? What what has he taken you out of? You owe it to God to give him praise. He deserves your song. He deserves your dance. He is worthy. Give him praise. Thank him that you made it. It, Look, if you need to grab a tambourine and bang that thing, then do it. But find a way to praise God for what he has done for you in your life. Miriam did. She grabbed a tambourine. She began to bang it. They began to dance. They began to sing. They were, because here's the thing. There's just something about being free, isn't there? Something about being free in Christ. Listen, I don't care who you are. You may not have any money, but you're free. You may not be smart, but you're free. You may not have very many friends, but you're free. That's the thing. You may not be successful in the world's eyes, but you're free. And God says to you this morning, am I not the God who delivered you from sin? Am I not the God who redeemed your life from the pit? Listen, my guess is, is that what God did for you last week isn't what got you here this morning. My guess is what God did for you that got you here this morning is that one thing that hardly anybody knows about. It's that one thing. Maybe there's one or two things, instances in your life that you can remember where God did something amazing. There was a a miraculous deliverance in your life. That's what gets you to church because you know there was a point in your life that you never had the guts to tell anybody about. Something happened to you. God delivered you. He pulled you out of the threshold of death and destruction. He did something. And that's what got you here this morning. It's that secret thing that only you know about, but you'll never forget. He did 
something for you when you were really in trouble. And that experience of deliverance became the pinnacle of your faith. And maybe you had disease in your body. Maybe you had sickness down to your feet. Maybe you had cancer in your breast. And maybe you had sin and shame over your head. And maybe it was a broken marriage. And maybe it was a broken home. Or maybe it was a terrible choice that you made that was destroying your life. But God came and he delivered you. And only you know what he did. The devil tried to destroy you, but God stepped in. And here's the thing. There's not a word for it in Greek. There's not a word for it in Hebrew. But God stepped in and he did a thing in your life. See, I don't have a technical term for that, Pastor Jonathan. I'm not real smart. Um, but I, I know that he did a thing in my life. He did a thingamajig. He did, he did, he did a something or another in my life. He... Maybe it's called regeneration, but all I know as a simple Christian is he did a, he did, he did a whatchamacallit. He came in and he grabbed my heart and he changed it. And he, he, he made me alive for the first time and he did a thing to me. He changed me on the inside. I don't know how he did it. I don't know why he did it. But when I think about it, here's the thing. It begins to make my feet want to dance. It begins to make my soul want to sing. It begins to make my heart want to shout. God did it. Give him the praise this morning. Listen, this is something you either know about or you don't. It either happened to you or it didn't. You either had a close call in your life or you didn't. You either had a nervous breakdown or you didn't. You either lost everything or almost lost everything or you didn't. You either were redeemed from a life of sin or you weren't. You either know this or you don't. This is what God has done for you and it is deeply personal. Deeply personal. So let me free some of you up this morning. You know, it's okay to clap your hands in church. It's okay to shout for joy. It's okay to say yes, Lord, and hallelujah, and praise God, and any other word that comes to you that will honor his name. That's a, no, that's a great thing to do. It's okay to fall down on your face. It's okay to cry out to God. It's okay to shut your door and stay in there until you can't talk anymore. But it is not okay to be dead and lifeless and emotionless and to be checked out as if God has done nothing for you. He deserves your highest praise. You know, I think that as a church, um, I think we have some work to do in that area of expressiveness. And to that end, and, and we just need to do some teaching on that. Because sometimes I think the fear is, is like, well, I don't want to be a distraction to somebody else or, you know, I don't want to, but we're a family, okay? We're a family, and God has told us that we're allowed to do those things, okay? Loud clashing cymbals, okay? Clapping hands, shouting to the Lord, all right? So it's not like, it's not, it's not like we can do, man, I can do that in private, but I can't do that when I'm with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I can't do that in local assembly. That's baloney, I mean, that's the place to do it. You, you will scream your head off at a basketball game or a football game. And man, our kids will go crazy with that kind of stuff. We got a church where we get all serious, man. And I know there's a place, trust me, for seriousness. There's a place for crying, for crying out loud. There's a place to get down on your face and beg God for mercy. But there better be a place to shout. 
There better be a place to sing. There better be a place to clap your hand and to say what you want to say. Here, I mean, about God. Here's the thing. If you're excited about God, then say it. If you're happy, then express it. If you're broken, then feel free to cry. But there needs to be a freedom and a liberty of emotional expression because that pleases God. You say, I want some theology for that. I need some exegesis. All right, maybe we'll do a, uh, not now, enough time. Maybe we'll do a series and we'll walk through expressions of worship. But the bottom line is, express your heart before God. If the Holy Spirit's creating emotion in you while you worship, don't resist that because you're worried about the guy next to you. That, that grieves God's spirit. Worship him with integrity. Have some integrity here. Listen, worship him with, with integrity. That's what they did in Exodus 14. They spontaneously praised their God. So we've seen how Israel walked through the sea in this crisis. We've seen the posture of faith. You remember it? Here it is. The first thing, they kneel down. The second thing is they move forward. The third thing is they look up in worship. This is the posture of faith. Well, where does that leave us? Here's where it leaves us. The Red Sea is a paradigm for salvation. It's a paradigm for how God intends to take us out of our own slavery. The Bible teaches that the greatest obstacles in our life are not obstacles of situation and circumstance, but obstacles of the heart. It's the selfishness and pride within. It's the self-righteousness and rebellion and unbelief within which means as great as the Exodus event was, there is no greater miracle that God does than to radically change the content of a human heart. Think about your life. God not only has the power to defeat the obstacles outside of you, but he has the power to defeat the idols and obstacles inside of you. Man, I need to be released from myself. I need to be saved from myself. And he has the power to crush the obstacles inside you. God has the power to radically transform our hearts. He has the power to make the rebel obey, the doubter believe, the selfish person serve, the adulterer become faithful. And that work of transformation is the hope of the universe. Jesus came and lived and died and suffered and rose again so that we might be delivered from slavery, not slavery to Pharaoh, but slavery to our sin. And by his grace, he welcomes us to transforming forgiveness, transforming power, and transforming deliverance. See, here's what faith is. Faith is an abandonment of all you are to the grace and sufficiency of all Christ is for you. Faith is an abandonment of all you are to the sufficiency of all he is for you. So I ask you this morning, what is it inside of you that stands in the way of trust in Christ, of greater faith? Perhaps it's an area of sin in your life that's a cancer to your soul. Uh, Perhaps it's pride. But whatever the case may be, faith attaches you to the transforming power of an almighty God. It attaches you to his redeeming power, his providing power, and his liberating power. Maybe you need to be liberated from something this morning. It says maybe it's a cycle of sin and confession, sin and confession, sin and confession. It's an issue of sin in your life. God has the power to liberate you from that. I guarantee, here's the thing, that whatever you were thinking about before you came in here this morning... 
or this weekend or whatever you have coming up this week that a hundred years from today, the only thing you will be thinking about is this very subject. Where was I in regard to a holy God? Where was I in terms of being reconciled to him by faith in Jesus Christ? So if you're not a Christian, I just warmly invite you, just, just do that first posture of faith, kneel down, and then move forward in trust in Christ, and then worship him with your life. If you're a Christian, the question becomes, are you moving forward in faith? Are you assessing your future by remembering the awesome power of God at your disposal each and every day? Remember, because as I've said in the past, faith is believing the word of God and acting on it no matter how I feel because God promises a good result. And so on this Orphan Sunday, let us remember that we were once slaves. And while we were enslaved to sin, and it was humanly impossible to free ourselves from such enslavement. Think about what God did. This offended God in infinite love, broke the silence and came forth to bless us. God sent forth his son. He graciously intervened to address our sinful condition. He provided a mediator and that mediator is greater than Moses because that mediator never sinned. And that mediator was perfect. And Christ led us through the waters, the sea of God's judgment and salvation. And we emerged on the other side, saved from ourselves and from the wrath of God. Now that's amazing. I mean, that's enough to get us to praise God for a lifetime. But did you know that's only half the news? I mean, just because the judge lets you go doesn't mean he wants to spend the rest of his life with you. Just because a person buys a slave into freedom doesn't mean he wants that person to eat at his dinner table every night. But when God the Father redeemed you and me, he did it so that we could come home to him as our father. God adopted us. He took us into his family. We are his children, which means that closeness and affection and generosity are at the heart of our relationship with God. I just wonder, do you perceive God to be full of affection for you? Or do you, do you fear that there's a coldness, there's an aloofness? God doesn't really want to be with you because you're, you're kind of gross and he doesn't want to be next to you. And, and do you understand that God not only saved you, but he wants to be close to you? So here's the thing. The more you reflect on his adopting love, the more that will become clear to you. And I encourage you to do that because as Jim Packer once said, to know God's love is indeed heaven on earth. And I, as one of your pastors, I want you to know God's love more deeply because everything else has a way of just going away. The problems, the pain, the confusion, the difficulty, the sorrow, the trouble, the anxiety, the criticism, whatever else it is, the worry, the fear, it just begins to go away and you become consumed with who God is, all that he is for you. And you begin to feel his closeness, his warmth, his affection, his love. Your faith begins to increase. And then you begin to take risks for him and do things for him because you want to do that for him. I hope we're growing in faith through this series. And I trust that this sermon will be another sort of step closer to that process. Let's believe God this week. Don't live in fear. Go forth in strength. In the, in the victory of our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
again your word. Thank you that you've led us through the sea of your judgment. How privileged we are. We, we bless you this morning. Now, God, help us as we leave this place to just experience your grace this week and to feel your closeness and to have victory, Lord, over sin and remaining sin in our life. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.